grew up in Wilmington and was a child during the war. Now 83, he is the author of two memoirs about life in the city during the war years, including A Sentimental Journey, Memoirs of a Wartime Boomtown, 2002. A boomtown it was. During the Second World War, Wilmington was one of the great arsenals of democracy. The North Carolina Shipbuilding Company employed about 21,000 people during the war years. In their massive Wilmington shipyards, they produced the so-called Liberty Ships, cargo vessels that hauled all kinds of freight, and later troops, and became a symbol of American industrial might. According to Jones, by mid-1943, construction time at NCSE for a single, 441-foot-long, 10,800-ton Liberty ship, from keel laying to delivery, was about 30 days. A wartime commission headed by then-Senator Harry Truman had found the Wilmington operation one of the most efficient in the entire country. There were other important military installations in and around the city, including the Ethel Dow plant, which extracted bromine, a component of aviation fuel, from seawater. The facility, a partnership between Dow Chemical and the Ethel Corporation, employed 1,500 people. That plant was one of just a couple in the U.S. that was producing the compound for aviation gasoline, Jones said. It was an important part of the defense industry in Wilmington at that time. And, he adds, it would have been a high-value target to the enemy, and it's where many locals, the Gregories included, thought the artillery fire was directed. In the mid-1990s, when Jones began researching his memoir, he interviewed another man who had worked at the plant and claimed to have heard the whistling of the shells that night, which, the man pointed out, not only missed the factory, but exploded harmlessly over the nearby Cape Fear River. We think the shells are still there, along the bank, says Jones. He also read accounts and interviewed witnesses who said that the lights of the NCSE shipyard were turned off that night from roughly midnight to 5.30 a.m., a drastic move at an around-the-clock operation and probably the only time the plant shut down during the entire war. After consulting other records and historians, including a 1946 report in the Raleigh News and Observer, quoting eyewitness accounts from a chemist at the plant that night and the commander of the local Coast Guard Auxiliary, he reached his conclusion. I think it's very possible that a lone sub was operating here for intelligence, Jones says. They realized they had an opportunity to do something, so they did. He hastens to add, I'm not going to swear on a stack of Bibles, but all common sense and circumstantial evidence points to this. Jones gave considerable space in his book to the views of those who believe the attack never took place, Foremost among them, another retired Navy officer and Wilmington resident named David Carnell, now deceased. In a letter to Jones, Carnell, who had done his own research, dismissed the attack as mythology. Jerry Mason, a retired U.S. Navy pilot whose website is widely recognized as a definitive source of information on the German submarines, agrees. It's highly unlikely, he says. He bases his naysaying on his work with both the National Archives and World War II scholars in Germany, as well as his extensive set of U-boat logs. Mason says that according to these records, by July 1943, there was only one submarine operating off the coast of the Carolinas, U-190, and its commander, Max Wintermeyer, was known for being cautious, a sensible posture for a U-boat skipper at this point in the war. Additionally, Mason says, the U-190 logs suggest the ship was far from Curie Beach that night and mention nothing about shelling the coast on that night in July 1943. Doing so on his own initiative would have been highly unusual, he says, because shore bombardment was a special task normally approved at the highest level of command. Indeed, he points out, 
using deck guns to fire upon land was used rarely after a failed attack upon an oil refinery in Dutch-held Aruba resulted in missed targets and the gun exploding in the face of its operators. Other experts, while stopping short of saying they believe the attack took place, argue that an attack by a lone wolf sub on a random but symbolic target is not something that should be completely ruled out. It should also be noted that Mason's records show two other U-boats entered North Carolina waters that same week. Is it possible that a U-boat commander would sneak up as close as he could, take a couple of pot shots, and hope he gets lucky? Asks Joseph Schwartzer, director of the North Carolina Maritime Museum System. Yes, it's possible. A maritime archaeologist, Schwartzer has done extensive research on the U-boat war along the Outer Banks, about 300 miles up the coast from Wilmington. There, enemy activity was most intense. The German U-boat commanders were pretty brazen in a lot of cases, he says. Richard McMichael, a historian with the museum.